familiar lyrics there that always started our program so prophetic they were how about fleece the rich and starve the poor because we got the government shut down and now they can't get their food stamps (laughs) what a way to start it's wednesday we got paul with us i think chris got patched in there right as we were getting started and it's uh you know uh wednesdays with paul and uh on these kind of shows you never know what's going to come out of it like our brent show too and i think brent might come up today here but well pa- welcome back paul yeah nice to be back. how paul. do i get how do i get feed stamps hi chris how do i get fe- food stamps over here then what, how, what do uh, I, have to do? I, I don't know but you're gonna have to let me put you on hold because i gotta answer this other line uh doc hey doc how you doing hello okay now can i get my other program back oh let's see hold on hold on folks i know i think i know what i'm doing hold on resume call i think maybe we'll be cool now hey you guys hi i'm back just back still trying to ascertain the parameters of this darn skype change paul so I thought I had it under control, and it reared its ugly head again yesterday. So anyway, it was just another thing we'll have to overcome, baby step at a time. In Spanish, they call that pasos de baby. Um, so uh, since last week, I don't think you've gone through Brexit since last week, have you? No, everybody's just been smoking cigarettes quietly on the street corner waiting for something to happen. <laughs> How British! All How st- British! Yeah, they're all, st- they're all, all everybody. Even I've taken up no. pipe smoking and, no. uh, and plodding around the garden, you know, and thinking, I wonder if no. anything will happen. So you got quietly to us. You've got to rephrase that. They're sitting around on the corner smoking fags. <laughs> you got to rephrase that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what some people do. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Has anybody got? In fact, there used to be a phrase over here. Say, I'm, I'm, what do you want? I'm trying to bum a fag. Seriously, <laughs> that was a phrase. What well, you know? We end the show now. It's getting a break. Sour now. I think so. We've only just got going. We? Well, I just got flashed on the. I flashed on the Churchill quote. Uh, a related people separated by a common language. I think is what he said. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, there's ooh, quite ooh. a few things. Well, you see, as far as I'm aware, I'm not a sort of top-notch etymologist, but we can't help but dabble, can we? The uh, the, the earliest I'm aware of the word fag in, in British language is to do with uh, Flashman and Tom Brown's school days because um, at these elitist public schools, uh, the top boys who had plenty of money in their pockets would um, have fags. Um, which were the little oiks and ticks that had just joined the school. And the fags had to basically run around and polish the uh, the school bully's shoes and things oh, like this. And that's okay. what a fag That's was. like yeah, a plebe. So a sort of subs- at at yeah. like West Point or something, they'd call it a plebe. And you're an underclassman and you're uh, relegated to taking command from these older students. There you go. Yeah, that's it. So obviously plebe must be from plebeian. 
and uh, we we would call them plebs over here. Is how it's pronounced in English. You you thick pleb if you are being you know reasonably rough with someone to point out that they were of low lower stock and a bit stupid. And we've all been called thick plebs over here. But yeah, fag. As far as I'm aware, it's probably maybe it's earlier. But Tom Brown's school days, which I've never read, but it's supposed to be a very very good. Uh, a very good story of moral upright standing and all that kind of stuff, which uh, used to be produced out of here a couple of hundred years ago, 150 years ago. Not so much today, of course, but there you go. Well, it's much too decent for today. It's far too decent, yes. It's it's very decent. We need to return to decency. I, I'm thinking of just padding around in the house, smoking my pipe and wearing my waistcoat. And I need to get one of those little Victorian pocket watches, you know, that actually sit in the waistcoat pocket so they can take it out and look at it every now and again. Um, not that I'm sort of obsessed with the time, Roger, but, um, you know, I suppose people really got into it because they had nice gold pocket watches and it was a nice thing to sort of show off. I'll just check the time. So um, I'm not very well today, as you can tell. I've sort of got <laughs> kind of a bit strange. Were you, at the pub? Strange... were you at the pub last night, were you? Oh, no, well, that's the problem. I probably should have gone. They probably just... <laughs> You know what's happening? You have too much sort of rarefied thinking, and sometimes you just, what you actually really need is just a very large pint of beer or something. <laughs> just let it all relax and sort of forget a bit of it. Yeah, so, uh, no, I, all part of it. Well, let me welcome Chris. He joined us there. He likes to get involved. Have you, have you been arrested or sent to an insane asylum or anything in the last 24 hours? <laughs> Well, it was very, very, very close yesterday, Roger. They were looking for every, any pretext, false story, lie, anything else they could brew and stew up to try to lock me up yesterday while I was down at the court witnessing for the defense and tried to approach them after the defense, that was. Of course, they're working in cahoots with the prosecution, as usual, uh, being the concept of justicialities, a secret silent war to absolute destruction of anyone they can ensnare into their court schemes. And they uh, sit upon me as I walked out of the courtroom into the court hallway and uh, wanted to detain me while they feverishly looked for something, smacking their chops, licking their lips lustfully for something they could lock me up for, but they couldn't find anything. And I escaped a free man, a slithery D, walked right out the door without anything. Much to, the, much to their chagrin, no doubt. Ah. Uh, Exactly a word I have in a paper I'm putting in today, much to their chagrin. <laughs> much to their chagrin. The last time right. you were on, Chris, you were often nearly going to get arrested, weren't you, last Wednesday? Is that what happened? Oh, the last time I heard you, anyway. So, uh, And didn't you have well, a cold last week? So you were going off with a cold, and you were about to. everything was about to go pear-shaped. Uh, yes, I was very ill, and I did go to court, and uh, yep. it turned out to be... Uh, very frustrating for them because they still haven't moved forward. We're well past the speedy trial rule on the initial plus about 254 days and counting on the other one. They still haven't got me to trial, so uh, that's a pretty uh, serious violation. Uh, looking for a dismissal based upon that whatsoever. Right. Of course, I have no idea what the charges better. are. I don't even know. I don't even know what you're going. How stupid is that of me? I just know that you keep going. It's like this strange little sort of running story, and I, I'm sorry. I, I have to apologise. I'm not really even aware of, of what you're actually fighting or dealing with. I bet Roger does. Oh, I bet absolutely. all the listeners do as well. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm well, Paul, you know, it's a simple thing. It's a pretextual traffic stop. 
They claimed I evaded a lawful traffic control device intentionally. Of course, that was not the story that I was operating under. That's their version of false facts that they uh, had a conclusion delusion of. And, of course, I reverted all the presumptions. Of course, they claim it's a criminal traffic court. It's a victimless crime because I'm the only victim of the crime. One for more options. Right. Okay, hold on just a second, guys. Doc, I'm trying to get back with you with all this confusion that's being caused, and we're not connected somehow because we keep missing each other. And I've already interrupted the show once to try and take your call, and there's nothing there, and I'm not doing that again. So we're going to have to either postpone it or get this thing straight later. Okay, sorry, guys. Hello, are we here? Basically, what it boils down yeah, basically what ball is down to for everyone. Uh, the first time back in 10 November 2016, I was falsely arrested. With, well, they attacked me in my yard. 20th December of 2016, I was falsely arrested by the FBI at their headquarters up in Martin Luther King in Las Vegas, transported by the city's agents, including a marshal named Marowitz and a female named Hardman. In fact, Marwitz stole a car from me that day without a warrant on abusing his discretion. And that started this thing off pretty much. And then, of course, it ultimately worked out that I was exactly right. They did not know the totality of circumstances. And the alleged felony for resisting an officer with a weapon charge was dropped and set aside. Well, because of the animus and retaliation, the vindictiveness of the prosecution for the county, and the city being a subcorporation of the corporate county, now they are trying to pick up where the county couldn't get it done, and they've retaliated and tried to sit upon and stalk me down and made this pretextual traffic stop by stalking me and waiting for me to come out and then seize some advantage of what they could try to convert to their own predatory interest and stop me on a traffic infraction, and it wound up escalating to uh, 15 units, a sniper with a spotter and a rifle with a scope and a grenade launcher and a dog with a handler, two helicopters, a remote special operations command post, and a standby EMT medical support unit, all for a supposed traffic infraction. That's how preposterous, absurd, and insane this deal is. Yeah, that sounds a little silly, um, to put it mildly. How about so extreme? If you, if you, if you have... How about yeah, it? It does. It sounds uh, extreme yeah, as like a nice adjective. It sounds like. Is that really what it is? Is let's uh, we've got nothing to do. Let's find some guy and get him s stitched up in some way. It sounds ridiculous. Well, it's not quite that. It's actually because I'm a loud voice for truth, liberty, freedom, and scriptures. I have become a terrorist threat, supposedly, to the criminals that operate the government, who are absolute Satanists and Luciferians. And they don't like the truth. The truth has become terror in the empire of the insane. And it's just really a bizarre set of circumstances. I'm kind of on the spear tip of the Bolshevik Revolution Three here in America. Uh, it's definitely a foot, although it's a soft form of uh, Bolshevism, uh, as opposed to being blatant in their face. There's just little pockets of things going around the nation and in the world, in fact, that tell us that the Bolsheviks are on, on the move on a global basis. Yeah, well, they're kind of, I, I don't know. It's, um, it's like an advanced kind of psychological disease that they get. Uh, it's more than that as well, of course, but it's almost as if they bind together because once they're involved in that, in that sort of line of, um, degeneration, 
they have to cleave more fully with everybody else that's already in it. It's a sort of, it's basically creeping totalitarianism, it seems to me, in the sense that everybody's slowly falling into a command structure and everybody has to be told what to do. And because they're, I suppose, they're kind of semi-militarized anyway in their culture anyway, out their police, if not fully militarized in terms of command structures, it seems to sort of fall into that thing very badly. Uh, and they end up abusing their power and not even being aware. Recording your message. If you are satisfied with your message, press one to listen to your message. Press two to erase. Let me get that girl to join our call. I think it's over. Are you still there? Reach the maximum time permitted for your message. God, I tell you what, these people could screw up a wet dream. To erase and re-record, press three. I'm trying. I'm trying to get this off of here and it won't cooperate. I'm so sorry. This aggravates the absolute. Time permitted for recording Good. Message. Good. Maybe it'll go away. Press one to Maybe it'll go message. away. Press two to erase and re-record. Press three. Jeez almighty. I am. She said all that last week, you know. She's not very interesting, that gal. Your message has oh, she's been back sent. Again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Jeez. I am so sorry. Uh, And let me just see if I can put this out and see if this guy's listening because it's being caused by this guy trying to call in. Okay. And he called in yesterday, Doc, one of our listeners. But the only way I can take that call, and I already put you guys on hold once and went to try to deal with it, and nobody was there. Okay, so I'm not going to do that again and stop the flow. And he keeps calling in and in and in and in. And both of the contacts I have for him, when I call out, that's the crap I get right there. He doesn't answer. So, Doc, I'm not taking your call. We'll have to straighten it out later. Okay, sorry, guys. But you can thank Microsoft and their absolute screwy way that they've configured and engineered this new software. Let me give you an example, Paul. You know, when you, because I change profiles, I got two profiles, a personal one I've had since 2006 and the one that we added for the network, Mr. Hotline. Okay. And so I switch back and forth. Well, when you switch back and forth, I'll switch out like I just did on my personal one and it gets a little transition routine. You got to go through a couple of windows in there. And the first one says, oh, you want to change? Do you want to go to a, a, another account or do you want to go back and it get his list the one you just came from well look idiot if i was just coming from it to go to this other one which you see on a regular basis why don't you have the other one listed there as the option i mean it's just little stupid things you know hb1 visas and engineers from other parts of the world that just don't think like we do evidently so sorry for all that interruption doc we can try and straighten it out tomorrow we'll get a profile hooked up which you recognize and i can contact you back on but i'm not taking a call and putting the program on hold for it just my policy go ahead guys sorry boy that's like a turd that's like a you see you see crap like that is like a turd in a punch bowl at a party okay I don't well, think you are giving these people credit. Go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. No, no, I think you were about to say something far more interesting, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm just pulling, I'm Roger, just reaching for the uh, gin I, bottle here. Uh, probably a double shots in order. Uh, yeah. Roger Dinley uh, tries to give them their due, and 
uh, dismiss it that they don't have any nefariosity, deviosity, or uh, really devious and treacherous agendas at foot. I'm not convinced as much, and I think that they absolutely created the most insulting to the intellect of people, the most difficult to navigate, the most confusion-causing to create chaos program they could, and say, let's send this out there and see, let them deal with this, and it'll cause them all kinds of vexations, well. and it'll be a kind of a shadow ban methodology to drive them crazy, and it's being fairly successful. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that gives them too much credit. I think this just, you know, this is pretty involved in IT engineering and stuff, and, and they're trying to switch over Ooh. an entire system. Obviously, what Microsoft was thinking when they bought Skype, because they paid $8.5 billion for it. It was the highest price ever paid for a software company, if you'll remember, Paul. And so they've got visions of a worldwide telecom system using it, which I see, you know, is a, probably a real good market for them. But they got to switch it from the way it was over to be totally conformed to the Microsoft system. And I think that's why they forced this on people. And they just don't have the engineering on it just totally good yet. As evidenced by this thing, I can't take an, I can't add doc to this call. Yes, it's rather rather weird. So anyway, uh, but uh, basically, I actually think that I just think their tech department is um, messed up. Uh, that's really what I think. I actually think it's just um, stupid lack of thought more than anything. Else. I agree they're, with they're that. Really involved in in customer acquisition and sending all their details off to the NSA. That's really their prime thing. Mm -hmm to make sure that they act as a good surveillance uh, busybody. And they forget about things like that. Well, it's know, a, Microsoft it, was selected by, was it CIA or whatever, to be the company through which that they would control software development and operating systems. I mean, that IBM deal that they got, that was, uh, you know. Well, you remember, <laughs> and IBM it was a stupid company. 20 something years ago that the feds came after them as the internet was really starting to take shape back then and the feds came after them real heavy in a suit on bundling you know making people use their utilities inside windows etc and uh, i always thought that that was them putting leverage on them to accomplish just what you said yeah, well, they've got to have their back doors and everything. I won't worry about it too much. It's just now, frustrating. Well, well look, I mean, I mean uh, we're in the business of trying to get people to listen to what we say. Hell, any listeners are welcome. I don't care what hat, color hat they're wearing, okay? Maybe maybe we'll turn them. When they purchase these large conglomerate databases, the data is the monetization. That's what they're after. That's information, that's knowledge, that's marketing tactics and techniques that is targeting people for specific interests that they want to promote or deny, as the case may be. And so whenever they purchase things like the NRA or um, Skype or Google, uh, DARPA, put their DARPA engineer there in charge of it, the former head of DARPA runs Google now, they really are accessing the data and they have more nefarious intents, I'm fairly convinced. Uh, than some give them credit for. In well, fact, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, it's not that Democrats are not smart, it's just that everything they know is wrong. Well, don't forget that Google is just part of what they call the alphabet company. And it's a whole bunch of what you're talking yeah, about, the acquisitions. Yeah, with a whole bunch of them. I'm not even sure what comprises that group, but it's Google's one of them. 
and that's got to tell you right there. Uh, the good news is they're getting exposed, and uh, nature abhors a vacuum, and wherever they try and get total control, there's going to be a lot of people popping up with alt platforms and alt approaches, and you see that happening. Um, and they just can't control all that the same way they can't control decentralized currency and uh, uh, the same way they're losing control of the political spectrum to populism, et cetera, et cetera. It's all kind of caving in on them simultaneously from a bunch of different directions. Don't you know that they're having a real nice gathering over there in Davos this week? Oh, they, Trump's not well, there. No, neither is Macron, neither is, there's a whole bunch of them that didn't show, but what did show was 12 feet of snow. <laughs> so they got inundated, they got inundated in this European uh, global warming scheme that's going on, and uh, the other people didn't show up. It must be a, there must be a lot of anxiety in some of those meetings over there this time around. Yeah, there have been a few reports floating around here that they're all a bit depressed or something or a bit cheesed off because people aren't turning up. I mean... Um, aren't worshipping. You know, they're not, they're yeah, not worshipping. It's, it's yeah, pretty... Yeah, I don't know. Pretty repulsive. Um, I had a couple of things here. One thing I wanted to uh, elaborate on just a bit, maybe read y'all just a piece of if I can get it big enough. Um... It's amazing to me sometimes the reach of these programs and who, who we touch. Uh, and uh, a while back I got a email from a gal that's in Londres. You know what Londres is, don't you, Paul? I don't. Londres is Spanish for London. And, uh, oh, okay. Oh, yes. She's over there uh, living with family, but she's originally Argentinian. And... Um, she heard some show and sent me something, and we we commented back and forth. And then she sent me something today on Argentina, what's going on down there. And uh, it's it's pretty unbelievable. They've passed a law. You know, we've talked about vaccines a bit lately. Uh, on their vaccination schedule with people, they've passed a law just recently that if you don't, if you it, you got to have your vaccination report to do everything, get a driver's license, apply for any kind of public services, et cetera, et cetera. And they got a database now that they're forming with all the vaccinations on them. And they said the the one exception is the driver's license. They won't they won't not let you have it, but they'll report you to the central authority for not having your vaccinations. And this is the biggest extreme on this that I've seen from any country in the world yet, except I don't know how they handle it over in China. But it's like the social score with China is what it reminded me of when I read about it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. I suppose it's not to be, um, it's not too surprising given the way that everything incrementally has just been um, part of this sort of total control system, everything. It's, it's just you get locked in on one thing, then they lock you in on another, and how are they lock you in on another. And how are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because they say that you've consented to it all, I guess. No, they're doing it because you're classified as a resident. Okay. And that's one well, of the things in I'm here. Really classified as of here. You might be, I guess. I don't know what. Well, you probably as. have declared it. I'm sure you say your residency. Don't they ask you your country of residence over there? It's separate from your Maybe. from your nationality now. Okay, 
Uh, here's yeah, another. I mean, we have a word over here called, um, we have citizens, obviously, I right, think, uh, right. which I've never really bothered looking up. I never think of myself as a citizen, even though I possibly am one. Probably yeah. am one. There's this other nice word. Yeah, um, which you must have as well, which is denizen. Yes, Not that's like another. Denizen. Yes, actually, what they're talking about is citizen slash resident, uh, or citizen slash in your instance subjects, because the the queen and the king have subjects. So you're all naturally of that, which is considered a free man, I believe. You know, and not a serf. Okay, but not nobility either. But I think the the term subject probably takes the place of the word resident don't forget in 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 um vatel and a listener sent me the pertinent parts of vatel's law of nations as v-a-t-t-e-l law of nations it's the primary bedrock of laws that all countries signed on to back in the 1700s and they still recognize it today okay but in the pages on on vatel when it talks about resident and residency Vitell always refers to them as resident aliens. Okay? Because right. that's the way the, the term was originally derived out of ambassadorial law. And the fact that you were living in a place, but another place had authority over the laws and jurisdiction over you. Okay? Right. And, and so that's what, how they're asking that. And here's a perfect example. My landlord, Patrick's got a absolutely fantastic daughter he's got two daughters that are fantastic but the one is oldest one is uh just graduating from law school you know very serious uh uh uh, really mature for her age and all that stuff and uh, her boyfriend is been out in the workforce for about five years and there's just no good paying jobs here uh, and so he wants to go to Australia because he thinks they're paying more. Well, he doesn't understand all this money stuff. And the fact Australia is about to go through a pretty hard time of their own down there already started. And But anyway, he's headed down there to go to school for six, eight months under the pretense of learning English. So see if he can find a job. Well, she's going to go down there and visit him. But it, it's almost it's very difficult to get there under those auspices with an Ecuadorian passport which she has, but because her father was American, she's also got an American passport, but she's not a resident. So she can't get the ease of getting down there. She, even though she's a U.S. citizen under the 14th Amendment, she's not a U.S. resident, which opens more doors and makes it easier. So this residency requirement I've, is real important, and I think it's the bedrock of the whole New World Order scheme because every country wants you to be one. Yes, I guess they do. They want you to be a resident. Um, I was just looking up the word denizen, actually, and there's a, a specific sort of meaning given to it. In British, it says, specifically British, an individual permanently resident in a foreign yep. country where he or she enjoys certain rights of citizenship. So, uh, and it's true, they have certain rights. I mean, you know, obviously, so therefore you can, uh, I look at the situation here with this country and... Uh, and view most of the migrants, really, obviously, as denizens and um, with certain rights, exactly. which unfortunately ex- uh, unfortunately, have been made to extend to voting, which I think is actually uh, unlawful. 
Um, not that it would matter too much because everything uh, has been twisted this way and that. But, you know, I often think about this. The the allowance of people into your country temporarily for relief is fine by me. I don't have an issue with any of those sorts of initial goodly intentions for doing this sort of thing. But, of course, that's not what the intention ever was. It was always to let that situation basically gestate, be amplified, get bigger and to allow it to get to such a size that it begins to threaten the uh, the culture of the host country, which, of course, it now does, and uh, the whole of Europe and North America and elsewhere and just about anywhere and everywhere where we've built uh, roots of a sort of civilization that reflects our values. So um, I don't know quite how I'm going to address that and get that sorted out. It's very difficult to take votes off people when they've been given them, but I'm sure we could just count the votes of the it, people that we want to, it's almost, like Stalin did. It would appear it's almost impossible to get them out of the culture in the country once they've been brought in there, even to the point where Merkel is offering to pay. If they'll, they'll pay their, if they'll leave, they'll pay their way out, and they'll give them a year's living expenses wherever they're going back to. I wonder how many takers yeah, she's I mean, had yeah, on that. Is not to even, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not coming from a point of view of trying to punish or be nasty or adversarial with these people, irrespective of the fact no, that I know huge numbers of them probably deserve it. But huge numbers are probably pretty good as well. I just think um, the main barrier to it is to do with the sort of emotional simplest, uh, simplistic response of most, in my case, British people to it. They go... Oh, it's their home now, as if there's nothing that could ever, ever, ever be done about it. And this sort of conceding to it um, is a terrible, creeping sort of problem because um, it's, gradualism. it's not about, well, yeah, it's not about letting a few people in. No one's got a problem with a few people. Nobody ever had a problem with a few people, whatever you want to define few as, say, two to three percent of the entire population. That's not a problem. It's not. It can be contained. Um, but when it's 15% and 20%, it can't be. It actually can't. In fact, I remember, I think it's about 20%. Um, there's a history with uh, Muslim arrivals in new nations. And when they hit about 20% of the population, your chances of, of revolution, either armed or peaceable, mainly armed, are very, very high, almost 100%. Um, because it's at a, a size then where it's a sort of self-sustainable culture within the host culture and it begins to want to expand at a rapid rate. Of course, um, it's more motivated to do that than the people that are in the incumbent culture because they're all going around going, well, this is my home. Can you just, this is where we relax. <laughs> you know, do you have to run around and sort of start throwing bombs all over the place? But of course they do because they want it all. So, and I think this goes, whichever, whichever arrangement you made, whoever was arriving in whoever else's home, you always get this problem because it's nature. Um, it's a law. It just basically says everybody stay at home and things will be as peaceable as you're going to get them. It's never going to be perfect down here, I'm sure of that. But, I mean, it's um, it's consciously been arranged to be as mayhemical, a new word for today, um, uh, mayhemical as we can. In fact, they've they've taken to calling a Theresa Mayhem as well with regards to <laughs> the Brexit thing, which I quite like. That's pretty good. I quite like that. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. It nails it. It nails it. So it's very good. well and of course that's what they desire because they can cause all those dialectics and pit all these people against each other justifiably so i I mean you you don't like people invading you and then like over in the case you guys are like the leading point of the spear i think okay uh in the fact that you've had those grooming gangs and all that stuff operating over there for 30 years 
Is that what I've read? Well, yeah, I guess. I guess, but I'm trying to figure out. I mean, there's all sorts of grooming gangs. So we've got the we've got the overt Muslim grooming gangs that are now being reported, um, but we've got the uh, Masonic grooming gangs that have been grooming society. Oh, of, of, years, of course, you know, into, of course, into a different way. As you know, I'm being a clever dick. Sorry about that, but you know where I'm coming from. So there's that that's been going on. Of course, they don't withstand. They don't stand in the way of any of this, which is part of the problem. And the you know, intentionally, every time these guys get sentenced. Intentionally, sorry. they don't stand in the way. Of course, absolutely. It's a plan. It's to reverse the the sense of justice, which is disturbing. Uh, you know, to, uh, it is so that the perpetrators of crime get very, very uh, low sentencing, um, and uh, the victims of crime are sort of ignored. Yep. and it makes made even worse. This is intentional. I remember reading something about this. It's all part of the sort of confusion system that they're laying in and have been running for decades. Frankfurt School. And, uh, it's Frankfurt School stuff. Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a denizen, if, if you're involved with this rape gang stuff and you're convicted, uh, not only do you go home to your country of origin, but all of your extended family go with you. Absolutely. Sorry. But there's 80 of us. Well, you're all off. That's it. We can't. Well. Because uh, he's been sentenced. They go, he's been sentenced to 15 or 20 years in prison. It costs £45,000 a year to keep him. So another way to do it is, okay, if he's going to prison, the prison bill is to be paid for by that community. I'd just charge him. Um, these things would work like a red-hot poker up your backside. <laughs> they would stop things almost immediately. Go, you don't want to be doing that because your family's going to be shelling out for your prison costs. Why should we pay for it? So they come over and they, they rape our girls and then we're supposed to pay for their incarceration for 15 to 20 years. Yep. Why? I don't want to pay. We shouldn't be paying a penny for it. You know, they either, I, the best thing would be to send them home, of course. Yep. Um, uh, and let justice in their home country fall upon them or not, as the case may be. If they want to let them all off, then they can let them all off. But uh, we we would need to be apprised of that. And then, because uh, uh, punishment's irrelevant. I mean, I just it, it is in these cases, you know. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of question about jail anyway. I'm reasonably sure that in the vast majority of cases, it's useless. Um, what we really need is if if they if they've committed a crime. I mean, in some cases, they can't pay it back, i.e. murder. You can't pay that back. You do deserve the loss of your life, it seems to me, if you go around doing that stuff. Of course, you've got to be very careful about it because there have been cases, regrettably, but understandably, of miscarriages of justice where innocent people over here did get hung um, because of the way it was set up, you know. Um, but that's probably part and parcel of the sort of corruption of the judiciary or the uh, the money flying around and this, that, and the other, protecting the privileged class from... Uh, punishment for their crimes that'll definitely be a part of it but um yeah i, I like the idea of them paying there back there wouldn't be an empty limb in the country if you could hang one of them some bitches for every one of them well it's true it's true i mean i just think going forward you have to think well um given the numbers of people in any so-called advanced nation i'm using the word advanced <laughs> in uh, inverse you know in, in quotes we have to sort of decide what we mean by that but um, given that, there's always going to be trouble. There just is. But you can have situations that reduce the amount of it and that have measures that would correct it more effectively than we've currently got. Uh, I mean, the, the, the system that exists seems to me, obviously, as we were just saying a, a minute or so ago, is designed to exacerbate the yep. problem yep. And, and to create a culture in which everybody feels rudderless, which is part of it's part of the psychological programming of, of the people as a whole. Um, that it doesn't matter what you say, 
into these so-called pits of authority, nothing comes back that's got any sense hammered to it. Very, very rarely, you know. Gibberish. It's the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Uh, The other day, Paul, I sent you a video that somebody had sent me um, with some really interesting information I'd never heard before. These guys have done a tremendous amount of research. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it or not. It's about 30, eh, about, is it an hour? Close to an hour long. This guy's being interviewed, and he's gone back and done some incredible research into things like the, the Rhodes Trusts and Cecil Rhodes and the attachment to the Privy Council. Did you get a chance to listen to that? I haven't done this yet. I'm sorry. No, I haven't. I, I think need, you'll uh, find well, it. I was into some of the other day. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I, no, I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted. No, I was just going to make a stupid comment, which I, I said the other day that I, I actually need more bottoms. Yeah. Because if I had more bottoms, there'd be more arms and more heads, and then I'd be able to consume <laughs> all this information more effectively. You know what I mean? I just got, I, I'm actually at the limit of the 24 hours, and I've been. I don't know who to write to, but I need a 48-hour day. I don't know about you. Well, and it's slightly frustrating, isn't it? Because you, yes. you know, I know you're sending me a good thing, but it irritates me that I haven't got the time. I'm going. Oh, I need to yes. look at that. And I'm going, I can't because I've got to. It's frustrating. Shout at the neighbor or something, or throw a log at a cat. You in know, Georgia, like up, so. in Georgia, they call it the opening day of dove season. Is that right? Yeah, you know why? It's because those doves hadn't been shot at all year through the off season, and on that first day, they're not. They don't. They don't have a dove calendar, you know with that big day X'd on it. And so they're out flying around like they normally do. And so they every t- place they fly, they hit somebody who's wanting to shoot them. And so they're real scattered. But after that, they have kind of find paths and stuff and learn how to get around these hunters. So that's where that saying comes from. Um, it's very interesting what this guy brought to four, though. And I'll just give you a little bit of what I can remember. There's a bunch of information on there. All right. But what Cecil Rhodes... When he went down with Milner, and he and Milner swapped yep. out governorships of South Africa. Milner was there for seven, eight years, and Rhodes was there before that or after that or something. All right. But Milner's, do you know Milner's background? Yes. Okay. He's a well, bright lad. Full. <laughs> and there's another guy that's involved in the whole play, a guy called John, uh, Ruskin from. Oh, absolutely. He's, he's oh. You know, he was like a mentor to all of them. And, in, you know, from one perspective, I kind of agree with it all. Um, I do. There's a part of me that goes, yeah, I, I personally want the people with brains to be in charge. I do, because I'm not a big fan of democracy, right? And uh, I think that uh, you, even though you still get wickedness and stupidity when that happens, it's less generally and it gets corrected quicker because the people who who have the aptitude and ability to do things in my honorable nirvana, which we know doesn't exist, <laughs> tend to be able to get on and do it. But the fact is that they've all got corrupted out. Yeah. You know? well, uh, man's, man's heart is black. Yep. No man shall know it. There's a problem right there. Um, but to go on with this is pretty interesting for the audience that doesn't know more. Lord Milner, I've become really aware of him lately because every time you look at something, his name pops up and he's involved. So obviously he's a, a psychopath creep. Well, I didn't know his background. His background was, I think it was his uncle and a Mary Merriman or something was one of the two mem- uh, members of parliament from the city of London. And the other was a Rothschild. 
and it was that that spurned uh, the Rothschild, of course, side. But then he and a couple of his heirs uh, took over the, I don't remember if it was Merriam, and that might be wrong, but it's something that sounded like that, similar. And uh, so Milner and them uh, started with, uh, with Mr. Rhodes, and you mentioned a key name, Ruskin. Ruskin was yeah, not John only Ruskin. he wasn't a pal of these guys. He was their teacher at Oxford. Okay, he was an art critic. Yeah, about that, he was an art critic. Yes, he, uh, but he, he conveyed a little bit more than just art. Well, he, really did. he went over to a guy house once a week and taught his daughter's watercolor painting, and that was the guy that wrote Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Lewis Okay, so the, all this stuff is real tangled, all right? But this was very interesting because this information they brought out in this interview. I'll post it at the bottom of today's show description in, uh, in CastBox. So um, when Rhodes died, there's a certain way of inheritance over there where you can dictate tally, tally end or tally mail a certain one of these little exceptions in the hereditament laws that the elite are aware of, and you can dictate that your land is never publicly sold. It's only passed down in the family. I'd never heard of it before, okay? But evidently, Rhodes's trusts and his fortune were attached in that way that they could only be passed down to family, and he was a homo screaming homosexual and had no children. Okay, so when he died, pardon me, Chris. I say I think they may call that a testamentary trust. No, it's something else. It's a, it, he used the word several times. Well, it was one. Well, I don't know what it is, but he had a specific name for it, and I'd never heard it before. Okay, uh, but I'm telling you what its what its object was. I'll post this up there. You guys can listen to it, and I'd encourage you to listen to the interview. There's some very interesting information in there, like I'm about to tell you. Okay, but it took that background. So Rhodes had his trusts under that form and he had no children so they went to his brother's two sons and they both died within a couple of years of getting it and then there were no others and it went to the privy council and today the privy council has control over the the roads trust what exactly in the scope and and is the privy council is that everybody that's privy that's in a, in the cahoots with the king is that basically what it is there paul yeah, it's, uh, if somebody could give you a much more thorough explanation, but basically it's like a, uh, a council of advisors and counselors, literally for the king, the queen's privy council or the king's privy council, the uh, knowledgeable advisors who are part of the bureaucracy and administration of the nation. Um, I mean, the thing with it is it's very similar, I feel anyway, with regards to uh, when you look at this British imperialism thing, um, and you look at the Roman Catholic thing, they're very similar in terms of the stories that they purvey, that, you know, you shouldn't take it at face value, that there are other things going on. And no doubt that's true, I think, to a, yep. a great degree. The uh, There's a lot of, you know, you can understand why they would do it. I'm not trying to sort of, I'm not in a position to judge the whole thing. I certainly don't put it down as being the main ongoing problem. 
but that's me probably being a Brit and defending my own corner, even though those guys would have probably treated me as scum back in the day. A plebe. You know what I mean? A I, wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been part of their world at all. You, no you're, so you're a, just, you'd been a fag. I would have been a fag. I would have been out there scurrying around, you know, old Billy No Mates, covered in soot, probably, and looking rather terrible. But uh, I can understand why they kind of got around to doing the things that they did. You know, it's just, I mean, where are we talking? It's the late 1800s. Uh, the British thing called the Empire, but I maintain it's an empire of the city of London. But that that organization well, was pretty good. He know, goes into that. It was miles ahead of he goes yeah, miles that. ahead of anything else in the world at the time. It, it just was. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that that's a good or it, a bad thing. It just, I'm just observing it for what it was. It was. It was and, a um, collaboration of the Dutch East India Company and the British East, East India Company combining. That's the kind of stuff he goes to and, uh, through on this interview, and it's perspectives yeah. I've never had before on that time frame and the development of this monolithic this is that one by gabriel and mckibben i, I think it was it daryl yes. sent me a link to it and you did as well i think he must have included it's probably from our show from last week we must have touched on this briefly i think last wednesday in some way i think we did actually didn't we so i've just not had a chance to get around to it but it's, about, it's just under an hour so i have got no excuses i will actually i'll i'll let it tickle my ears after this one at some point today. there's a lot of very interesting um, information in there i think you'll find it most uh, time well spent well, you know, the, the, the appeal of this, if that's the right word, um, obviously found fertile ears in Carol Quigley because Quigley yes. said, broadly speaking, I go along with this, okay. And I, you have to kind of keep stepping back. I mean, I've had, you know, the term revisionist, um, which is obviously we seek to review, look at things again with maybe a clearer eye and with a better perspective and a more fuller context, and we see a different pattern emerging each time. And one of the irritating things about history is that that never seems to stop occurring. It's always happening for me. I, I always have to sort of precede anything I say with my current understanding is. Um, and that's very vexing, isn't it, to the mind, because we want to be sure, we want to stand on clean foundations. Some things I think we can be very, very sure about, but with with regards to our view of history, it gets complex because... Uh, you may respond more favorably to an account by author A, I less so, uh, and, and and vice versa with author B and C and D. And Chris might say, no, you need to re read this. So, however, that's I don't think that creates insurmountable hurdles. What it just it, means is that we have to be pretty dedicated to keep chewing through what it. You have and, to be, and we are. You have to go back and continue to concentrate on facts because facts are going to – all they're doing is extrapolating an opinion from the facts that they saw or the opinions mm -hmm. they had they wanted to draw a conclusion towards. But that's the way you combat it. That's why, you know, when we had like Michael Gaddy on here, that's what he did 30 years is go into the archives and spend weekends. Yeah. When we were out there drinking beer and down at the pub, he was in the archives, you know. Is he in the pub now after all these 30 he years? Might be. He, he might be. He might think he needs to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Along, he drives you to you saw, <laughs> you saw that little JPEG I sent out. I sent it out to a few people, and it shows the Neanderthal chart, you know, with the guy coming up from the dirt and then a couple of progressions. Yeah, yeah. And then there, at yeah. the end, the, the head guy's walking back towards him. He says, turn around. We screwed everything up. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, maybe all those drunken guys that you see lying around the streets, you know, with bottles of whatever they've got, maybe they're all basically burned out revisionist researchers. They're just, that's what happens to you. If you go a little bit too over the top, it fries your brain. It can do that. Well, it can do it. What, but, what, we, what we come to pretty clear conclusions on is that we're going through social engineering and all these different financial engineering, et cetera, by these people that have their own designs, agenda, and ends in mind. And, uh, and we're, we're part of their agenda, but, on, but we're supposed to be trodden over to get to where they want to get to. All right. And you just got to well, understand all, I this mean, stuff. Yeah, most of the time, I think you're right, Roger, most of the time that is how it appears. I mean, as a sort of caveat back to myself to keep myself slightly sane through all this because sometimes i don't know what it's like for you if you spend several hours say chewing or mulling over a particular channel of information i sometimes get not so much lost in it but i'm beginning to wonder what the meaning of life is because you you get this sense that this process is without end it appears to be there's no end to this sort of thing and and when are you going to spend some time deciding about what's important to you, well, you know? now what's important to me for example is like having a cup of tea this may sound ridiculous but i I've, i derive so much pleasure simple relaxing pleasure about knowing that a cup of tea is coming up in a couple of hours that it make it keeps me sane and my feet on the ground with the whole thing i mean i mean going back to this period as well something which i've yet to get round to in terms of research there's a guy I don't know if we've discussed it here. There's um, a chap called C.H. Douglas, uh, Major Douglas, who... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Major Douglas's diaries? An, well, no, he's a, he was an economist, or he came oh, okay. up with... He came up with the whole structure of economy, did Douglas. He was a Scottish engineer, or a British engineer, I think of Scottish descent, and he was involved in building a lot of railroads, and very smart lad, and... He ended up analyzing um, a supply problem at the MOD around about 1917. They couldn't build planes. And, he, uh, and have I droned on about this? I'll, I'll keep you brief. They couldn't build planes. And he, they brought him in. They said, look, you know a thing or two about big projects. Can you find out what's going on? And what he discovered was that all the wings existed and the fuselages and the engines and all the men were sitting around. And the reason why no planes were getting built is that there was no line of credit. No one was getting paid. He said, this is mad. All because of a bit of paper or some kind of sort of connecting system. And he determined from this that there was insufficient purchasing power in the economy for people to even buy the very things that they'd made the day before. They couldn't actually buy what they just made. So, you know, it's quite a simple observation. Anyway, Douglas wrote some very very good things uh he's very difficult to read as well at times he's sort of a very tortured engineering language that's that's unpleasant to read it's not good for your health you go will you get to the point man that's what i get to when i'm sort of reading through it but he made an observation about um oh um oh gosh i've completely forgotten his name now. i've just got rothschild sitting in, in my head disraeli disraeli okay benjamin disraeli so uh, Disraeli is the Prime Minister of Britain under Victoria in the 1870s, 1880s, something like this. And there's a little comment passed by Douglas, which I need to find more on. He said that the Conservative Party, which was the party that uh, Disraeli was the leader of and subsequently then went on to become the Prime Minister uh, of Britain as a, as a Tory or as a Conservative, he said that the Conservative Party died when Disraeli came to the head of it. Because, he said, prior to that, the Conservative Party had been staunch opponents of the Bank of England. This is very interesting to me. I, I wasn't aware of this. So for basically about 170 years, the Conservative Party, all through the 1700s and for the bulk of the 1800s, was a staunch opponent 
of the existence of the Bank of England because they would have known that it was a private uh, a private scam. And even though half of them probably were involved in it, they were still honourable. But when Disraeli came in, it was effectively a placement for Rothschilds. Yep. Um, like the I, neocons. I, I got to, it's like the neocons yeah. that took over the Republican Party and got us into all that Iraq stuff. Same exact parallel. Go ahead. Absolutely. You know, so he came in, he makes, he, he, he coins this title for Queen Victoria, the Empress of India, which is all this sort of showbiz stuff that they always get into, you know. Yeah. And uh, he was connected with the East India Company and they were making a fortune out of India and this, that and the other, blah, 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 blah. Same old, same old, so nothing new. Um, but they stopped this sort of opposition to the bank. That's as much as I know, which is not a lot, is it? So I, I really could – I haven't been able to find any resource material on it, but I would like to know for why. Uh, purely for the reason I would like to confront modern conservatives and say, where did it you, – you know where it all went wrong is when you stopped hammering the Bank of England because you still need to get it back under control. Well, that just draws to the modern thing. I think I sent you a copy of. Somebody sent me the other day. Um, and it was the young Rothschild. This is on Twitter. Oh, yes. Okay, this isn't chopped chicken liver. This is on Twitter. And the young Rothschild uh, addressing one of Mr. Trump's tweets on Twitter said, keep your effing hands off the Federal Reserve. Here it is. Yeah, Rothschild. Rothschild. Rothschild tells Trump to, quote, shut the F up, unquote, about reforming the Federal Reserve Bank. This is public. This is on Twitter. The tweets are right here. Yeah. Well, he doesn't need, I mean, look, this, what force is in place to stop a president appointing a non-Jewish board on the Fed? Because there obviously is a force in place because there's never, ever not been a Jewish chairman of the Fed ever since it was started. I don't think Powell is right now, right? All right, but who's the head of it? Jerome Powell. All right, okay. Well, maybe he's not. But he's the first one one in a long time. Yeah, well, before that, it was was, uh, the little doe girl, uh, uh, Yellen, and then you had Bernanke, and then you had Greenspan. And those were, Bernanke and Greenspan were both elongated terms. So uh, uh, Greenspan, a multi-term deal. So there's yeah, 20, yeah. 20 yeah. something. Maybe Powell's probably a high level Freemason. I mean, you, you'd have to oh, think that he's probably one of those. Well, I'm wondering. Know. See, here's just, my thought has been the whole time if he isn't a setup guy on the inside, because Trump can't directly go after the Federal Reserve easily, like you're seeing with what we just discussed. But yet he can go after the underpinnings of it all with these trade treaties. And so that's what he's attacking. He's just about got China on their knees, evidently. So uh, interesting, interesting times, Ben. I think, you know, this thing about it's understandable that we look to this uh, recently massively revealed uh, hidden history. Hidden, I suppose, in the sense that it's the history told by the other side, those that lost the wars, those yeah. that lost the economic battles, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yep. So, you know, courtesy of the net, of this technology, we've been able to sort of wide-scope account the hidden narrative. And uh, it's surprising just how much of it there is, I suppose, because it's still, even now, to this day, these new things keep coming up because, you know, this stuff has been held down for centuries. Well, and and, and the you know, guy that... The guy that really opened the door to this information getting out was that poet that 
Eustace Mullins was so close to Ezra Pound. Ezra. And he's the one that went to Italy, got on a big 500kW uh, shortwave radio uh, 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 transmitter and would pipe that stuff back over into the U.S. and tell him what was really going on because he, he had the knowledge historically and the understanding of the enemy to put it together. But he's the one that really opened the door for a lot of this. Well, he did. Yeah, he did some fantastic stuff. And he had a very tough life and paid a very high price for not really doing very much by today's standards. But yep. you can see just how trigger happy they were back then. And I think, but the, it's understandable that we, you know, and there's a huge number of people now in this we that I'm talking about, would, would inquire about this hidden narrative, seek to stitch together different component parts and come up with a clearer view and we're doing that all the time it's very rewarding because you feel sane at least there's that bit you go at least i'm sane well in a world gone mad but by the same time also i don't necessarily think or i i play around with the idea that it's even though i know that they have wielded great force and misery against us and particularly our forefathers particularly over the last century worldwide I still think that there's an option a route for us to take responsibility for the situation. For example, you know, what you were just saying a second ago, it's not to invalidate what you said, but it's understandable that we would look to say someone like Trump to try and chin the Fed, but it's not going to happen. Nope. And I think that, uh, uh, and it wouldn't matter who we dropped in there, right? Okay, maybe if we dropped Thor in there with his hammer, <laughs> we, we'd be in with a... You know, isn't that, that, would, isn't that uh, what? And if he's if he doesn't want to use it for a weekend and wants to lend it to me with all the powers that come with it, I'd be quite happy to take him up on the offer if he's floating around because you know someone needs to make use of that thing in a proper way. Well, um, some uh, people think there's a some people think Trump is Troy. Well, I'm I'm okay with it if that's what's going on, <laughs> but I think there's something that we I just keep on having this idea that there's potentially something that we can do but uh, the little guy but we never do it we never get around to realizing this potential because uh, and one of the uh, i'm not saying that we're never going to do that but history shows that it's very difficult uh, one of the reasons is that we are to some degree hamstrung by taking the victim role that there wasn't much that we could do about it. And we tend to build a case to support that. It's understandable. And actually, we're probably right. <laughs> okay. But there's something about this weakness, about being prone, about saying we can't do anything. I actually think, you know, I keep getting drawn back to the sort of the Lord of the Rings analogy, which is when you look at the whole scope and context of the of the story, and it's, it's an, uh, an analogy in many, many ways for what we go through. Uh, but it's no different for things that previous generations, millennia, have gone through. The sort of It's always this fight against those that want total control and those of us that actually are not too interested in that. Is that in that story that it was the little guy, literally, I mean, he actually wrote them as very, very small, you know, to get a point across almost. It was the hobbits, the, the three and a half foot hobbits, that actually triggered the whole difference because they were... Uh, they were in a position to just almost naively enter into the whole thing and do it. There's something possibly still missing to us. Oh, there's an opportunity that we might not see. I mean, I don't think we're going to, we're not going to outthink the guys on the other side because you've got to remember they've got everybody from Harvard, Yale, Oxford and Cambridge, etc., working for them. They, they pluck the best guys. All the guys with 180 IQ are already, most of them are over on that side. 
and they they're seeing things way ahead than we can. So, but I don't think that should put us off. It certainly doesn't put me off. I well, think that. that's what the value of what we do here is. What I I feel is because it it addresses everything you just covered. It allows the hobbits a way to get out of the shire. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and it gives, we're not supposed to go in there and fight those guys. Our, our book tells us not to, of course we mm-hmm. do stuff in there all the time. It tells us not to, and we generally get the repercussions from those actions, but it tells her don't fight her or come out of her. And so that's what this approach does. It allows you to come out of her in all the key important areas, and it does allow you to come back and take control. And it allows you to shed that invisible connection called jurisdiction legally on which is the precedent that they do everything to you and so i feel like you paul paul when we talk occasionally we don't get to talk enough paul's always saying i want more listeners i want more listeners i want thousands hundreds of thousands millions tens of millions well i do too but I've had, and I've wanted that since the start, and I thought I'd have that seven years ago when this got out there to just sweep through the patriot community like a proverbial wildfire with the Santa Ana winds driving it. But it didn't, and it hasn't. And I've had to adjust my thinking and come to the biblical understanding that there are just a few people that are supposed to know and react to this, and we're not supposed to be able to do anything with it. Uh, you know, everybody's going to want to take the country back. What the hell would you do with it if you got it back? Let me pose that to you being over there in England. If you guys could take it back, what the hell would you do with all the problems they've created? Um, well, I guess what I would be doing is, and I do think about this actually more than you would possibly imagine, <laughs> I'm thinking about the first Monday morning and who's on my carpet. <laughs> that's going to be a bitch of a right, uh, time before lot. lunch, isn't it? Yeah, there'd be a lot. I'd be very busy. And I've said to someone, <laughs> I was out with someone the other week. I said, you put me in charge uh, for three to five years. I said, it'll be very bad. I said, it will be bad. I said, it will be, it will be evil. I said, but it will be pretty bad. But at the end of it, it'll be absolutely amazing. I said, I'll do a house cleaning, the likes of which you've never seen well, in British history, uh, because we, we know what's going on. But I think the thing would be that, um, you see, there have to be people within all these agencies and everywhere that are empathetic to this sort of line. There are all sorts of terrible practicalities that are sitting in the way. We're dealing with, you know, we come down to it. Are, are we, not? we are dealing with spiritual wickedness in yep. high places. Yep. That's exactly what we're dealing with. Because you think, well, how, does the, how do these guys and gals, these horrific beings and creatures, how do they get up in the morning and indulge in the sorts of behavior that would make you and I want to kill ourselves? I can live with myself over these things, you know. I value my eternal soul far more than this sort of foul stench that they're seeking to create for the duration of this one lifetime. And and it's getting to grips with that to some degree. But, I mean, I think there are a great many simple practical things. I don't think there's any one thing that's like the magic bullet on this. Um, although... Um, restraining the Bank of England and turning it over literally to the ownership of the actual Britons would be at the top of my tree. The Britons would actually own it. And every time it made a a profit, you would get a kickback from it in whatever way. And everybody would know. And I'm also very interested in transparent bank accounts uh, because I'd remove income tax. So there'd be no, no, if people are hiding stuff, remove all the reasons for why they'd want to hide it. Uh, you wouldn't know. And, and also make the measure of life, not how much money you've got in the bank, 
but how much um I suppose it's very naive how much goodness you're involved with literally i mean i, I do think that people really we do we really want to get back to those old ways but um, so there'd be a whole series of things, Roger, obviously, that one would need to do. And, and I guess from our perspective, right. I mean, what's the thing that takes place in the States? Oh, it takes place with our ministers uh, when they go in and for the first time. They look quite don't they? And they're all ready to get on with it. And then you look at them after six months, their hair's gray, they look haggard. Oh, the presidency, yeah, absolutely. It, it really ages somebody real quick. You can see it. It's visible. Um Those- I'm sure the audience will be happy to know that the shutdown woes uh, deepen as 800,000 federal workers are to miss their second paycheck, and the IRS employees have bailed. And that's that's what I know make everybody happy. Uh, Trump ordered them back to work without pay, and a bunch of them didn't go back, and they're protesting at some of the service centers around the country now. So uh, the interesting thing here, now this is another, is Trump the Troy man, or is he just lucking into this stuff? But what a lot of people don't realize is that after the federal government has been shut down for 30 days, that they can't go in and wholesale indiscriminately fire people, but the heads of the agencies can go back in and restructure the agency and do away with positions. Is this a way for Trump to clean the swamp from the backside? Could be. It's it's like trying to... If we take an, uh, an optimistic view of what's taking place, or a positive one, we would say... Or I sometimes say to myself, well, these machinations are deemed to be the most but from factors. Might not be the most effective in terms of being the most rapid, but they would lead to the least amount of collateral damage. They would also lead potentially to a reduced chance of ongoing internecine warfare between departments and this, that and the other. You don't want that if you can avoid turf, it. Turf Is battles. It Turf battles. Yeah, it could rumble on, as it has been rumbling on for a long time yep. now. But it could rumble on in all sorts of other ways. You go, look, uh, it's like saying, well, we should do this and smash these people. I go, stop, think about what you're saying. You know, not that I have the power to do anything like that. If you were to do that, what's to say that their sons and daughters are not going to come back in 50 years and cause absolute mayhem and ruin? So don't do that. That's not sensible. There is another way to resolve this. And we must find a way. So it's like steady squeezing everywhere. Seems to be the methodology everywhere. It's frog boiling, isn't it, on both sides. Everybody's trying to boil fro- boil the other people's frogs very, very slowly and push them into positions where the circumstances, the, the landscape, as it were, compel them. Have you ever had... Ways, you know, that kind of stuff. Have you ever had frog legs? Or what to eat? Yes. I'm not... I'm, Weird. I'm not weird like you, Roger. No, we can't be doing anything like that. Well, you know, I went to school in Louisiana. They have a lot of bayous and stuff, and they have a lot of big old bullfrogs down there. And those those cages, damn Cajun, will eat just they'll eat just about anything. Okay, and uh, I'm telling you, frog legs are delicious. The old the old cliche that it tastes just like chicken. Just absolutely is true. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? Now, this is how you properly bring somebody on, Doc. Patrick called. I've got a profile for him. I hung. I, I hung up on him, and I called him right back. And now he's with us. Hey, Patrick. Hey, fellas, just listening in. I've been a little under the weather. Caught a sinus cold, and uh, 
just kind of coasting. But uh, been good conversation today. I really enjoyed what y'all talked about. Good. Um, you know, as far as as far as Trump, I believe that he's probably going to drain the swamp. I think this is a lateral move to get a hold of him and, and you know just stir the piss out of the Democrats a little bit more. You know, he's and it's evident that they're after him. And uh, in military, for this too. in military terms, they'd call this a flanking maneuver. There you go. Fire to him. I enjoy it. Every, every time we can slap him upside the head a little more. You know, they're top heavy. Hell, I get top heavy in my little Mickey Mouse business. Sure. You know, you got to go in and pay attention. I mean, the the, the profit dictates the uh, job. If it, you're not producing nothing personal, you just need to practice well, being friends the next 20 years. You know, sometimes I think we impute a little too much credit to them and and paul was mentioning a minute ago how they go and cherry pick all these bright people and run them through these uh uh propaganda mills and get their brains working the way they want them to think inside the box but it that has its own detrimental side effects of the fact that they get far removed from reality sitting up there in that ivory tower and that always comes back to bite them and uh, you know, us people out here in the flyover country, the hinterlands, wherever you may be, we're not all that stupid. No, not at all. Not at all. We're the backbone of the country. So I'm the one that produces the crops, you know. Well, and that's why they're, they're right. I, I like to tell I've chosen through partly through trial and error and this platform and this approach it's an open conversational educational platform I try and touch the people that however we get to them that the information resonates with and people like Patrick right here that fit that exact scenario when he comes online we try and get him up to speed as quick as possible so that he can make his own decisions on what he wants to do with the information I've never Never told anybody to file this paperwork. Never. Okay? And because early on, as I was putting all this together and about to embark on it, I realized that that's not my place. Okay? I don't want to be some mythical big leader. I, I want to be a teacher because you've got to be your own leader. Everybody's got to be their own leader here. That's the only way it gets back to the real strength is strong personal individuals with rugged individualistic thinking. And that's what this information does if you're the right person for that to happen. There's some people it just ain't going to happen in, and others it's going to just germinate and do all the things it's supposed to, and bam, here's this free person over there that's totally in control of their lives. And I've got a myriad of people like that uh, over these years, and it does the feedback I get from that is better than any paycheck you could give me. Well, I believe, Roger, you're, you're kind of like it talks about it. Ezekiel, you're a watchman on the wall and where they hear they forbear but you're uh, you're putting out the truth at another another level well it's a, yeah it's way deep down and nobody's ever under uh, 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 taken a, to a toil to, to get this deep in the soil before but you know you also touched on something interesting paul you brought it up before i could mention it because when you were touching on it earlier around it i was going to mention carol quigley 
Okay. And Carol Quigley, of course, wrote Rad Tragedy and Hope. And he was Georgetown law professor, Bill Clinton's favorite professor at Georgetown. And for two years had total access to the Council on Foreign Relations uh, private files, which he spent a lot of time over there. Like he he Michael Gaddyized them, you know. And uh, but and his conclusion was what these people were doing was correct. Exactly what you said. But his complaint was they kept it secret and they ought to make it open. And notorious. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I suspect that, you know, there's a there's another force behind that. I just generally think that that's the case. I think it's um, uh, wrapping up this agenda in national flags has been the case for several hundred years now. You know, wherever there's a national flag, there's another force behind it that says, yeah, this is about France, the French Empire, this is about the British Empire, this is about the American Empire, yeah, blah, 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 blah. It's not. It's always about that other one. It's about that hidden hand. But, of course, it's not that hidden. Um, the way it continues, I think, to hide itself is by coming up with another new story. Oh, it's the Jesuits. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Oh, whatever. Not that these agencies don't have a role. But they're always a bit, it's a bit like a sort of a rotating carousel of new deception. Deception for the next 40 years will be this. You will look at this, and you will think that this is going on for a bit. So, Westphalian. Uh, stop all this. I don't know whether we can get to the bottom of all that, Roger. I don't even the. think it's worth the time or effort. I think what we, what we, I get, I tend to get most excited when we look at things like the engineering problem of our civilization the things to do with law the things to do specifically yep. with the so-called laws around money you go well if you remove that what you'll do is it's a bit like the the rats won't have a place to hide anymore i'm not bothered about what lies they tell i just want them to not be able to tell any and, and the, the way you do it is by shining a spotlight and we have to get back it seems to me actually i'm lying we were never in charge of these things from the get-go we have to sort of get people to understand that central banks are not good they're not good no nope. they're really really bad yeah. very, it's very called bad. they have a name for it the westphalian era have you heard that paul yes i have okay well that and i went back and did a little research on it i'd never seen it till a couple of years ago it popped up in an article i went well what the hell's that you know and uh i didn't move on it for a while saw it pop up again finally got motivated to do some research on it and that's back when they started really having nation states okay but it's just like you said it's not the nation states that are sitting there next to each other trying to do their own business it's these people that are behind the scenes controlling the money and trying to pit them each against each other so they can play divide and conquer that's the yeah, and of course yeah all these and things use that as a causative reason to to set up for example the united nations of course it sounds so great wonderful but oh you need the united nations because you know you're all at war okay well we're all at war because of people like you being agitated for it with yep. inside each nation yep so you know uh oh we, if we can all just get along well can't we, we the, can. the rodney you, the, the rodney king lament can't we all just get along chris you've been unusually quiet today you're not being assaulted out there or anything are you yep, he might have been he might have had to go away um we've got an interesting eclectic group of listeners here <laughs> okay and uh many of you i've become personal friends with and and uh, it's just a wonderful experience for me. You know, with the, I, I, thinking dialectically the way I've trained myself to do, Paul, I, I go back and look at things like, man, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this? I'd be like bored stiff. 
I get bored stiff doing this. <laughs> Sometimes, don't you ever? I go, oh, not I really. All the books I've got to read, and, and I go, I mean, when's this going to stop? I go, stop. You know, let's go and do something. Let's let's just do something really simple, and let's go away and let's pick up a hammer and hit some wood and put a yeah. nail in it or whatever I need to do. You know, to just right. go and do things. I I saw other people. I don't know how they cope. This is what I just go. You know, when you're talking to so-called normal people who aren't asking very many questions about much at all, I'm wondering how you actually survive in, in, in that way. I mean, I just think the whole you want to be a walking, talking, questioning machine nonstop yep. until you shuffle off this mortal coil. There's always a good question to be asked. There sure and is. Somebody needs to be asking it. Why not you? You know, and uh, that's that's part of the whole process. Just going back to this thing about numbers as well. You were mentioning about numbers and me, you know, continually whinging on that we need to get to loads and loads of people. And um, if it's not me, I don't mind. I, I think the whole sort of movement is, right? And maybe it's um, supposedly disorganized look is, in fact, a, a really good safeguard. Um, the fact that it's not sort of uh, regimented with one central target is good. It's all over the place, you know. It's like uh, we're like damp. We're like fungus in doubt, springing up everywhere in little clusters all over this edifice that they've yep. been trying to build and yep. uh, and wreck the whole thing. But there was an incident. I don't know if I droned on about this the other week. I lichens. I mean, I've heard that. Lichen. Yeah, lichens. Lichen unto. But you didn't mean that, did you? No. You meant lichen as in fungus. You're absolutely yes. right. So, But there was a, um, a bit of the research into sort of um, the history of uh, the Israelite understanding over here, and I, I don't want to hijack the conversation fully on this, but this is just something that's interesting, and, I, and I'm in the process of trying to acquire more information on this. There's a, there was a cardinal over here, uh, quite famous, called Cardinal Newman, and he died, I think, in the early 1900s, but he's a well-noted guy. Anyway, his story is quite amazing. He he obviously, if he was a cardinal, he ended up as a he ended up as a Catholic because he certainly didn't start off as one. He started off as a as a big bishop in the Church of England, and I'm trying to get some more information about this because what occurred during the 1800s was that the the Israelite understanding, and I'm not going to go into it all here. So those that know know, and and, and it's not necessarily for this right now. But the Israelite understanding was developing rapidly amongst the congregation of the Church of England. And Newman was a bishop in it at the time. And he got concerned about this. And uh, the figure I had was that there was something like, in the mid-1800s, 1840s, 1850s, nearly two million people knew this stuff and were getting behind it. And it was very seriously being considered to become part of the doctrine of the Church of England. This put Newman off so much that he left and became a Catholic, which I thought was really rather bizarre uh, from my perspective, right? But I mentioned this because that's going back, what, 170 years, something like that. But they were able to get a lot of people understanding something profound. And what occurred was that Rothschild stepped in over here with money later on in the 1800s, might be the 1900s, and perverted the sort of base of the knowledge there. And it's just dribbled away down to an almost nothingness and they i'm not saying it was wholly accurate i mean it's a big big ranging conversation and not for now but the reason i raise it is just to say i think large numbers are available i think they oh, are I, they're, they're, they're obviously just not available yet because we've not got all our ducks in a row i but concur we're getting them there. i concur yeah. and and that's why 
I've kind of shifted the emphasis on attempting to do what we do here as well as possible and just continue to uh, hone that and to polish it. And at some point, you're right, the masses are looking for the information we've got. And, and let's just face it, if that were to happen, let's say this week, this quarter, and what if all of a sudden the Secretary of State up there got five million affidavits in three months? Yeah, it's quite. It makes one a bit giddy, doesn't it? Yeah, the thought of it. Yeah, see, I thought that because would happen. It's, it's, yeah, well, I thought that would happen seven years ago. Yeah. Well, people need to be led. Yep. I'm, I, I wouldn't have said that to you five don't years wanna, ago, but the more I look at it, well, they do. And you see, that's the problem I've got is I don't want to be a leader. Okay, I want to be a teacher. I want them to be their own leaders, but you got to take somebody that's being totally in a mental subservient mindset and show them where the fraud is and then gradually lead them out of the forest, okay? And it takes time. And it just ain't everybody's not strong enough to do this or everyone's circumstances are not in a situation where, let's say, they feel they can tackle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in uh, when we talked briefly before the show's going on our little sound check thingy that um, you spoke at length with one Mr. Brent Allen Winters yesterday, and you might talk about that today. Why don't you fill us in a little on that? Yeah, I don't know what happened with Brent yesterday. I think he must have tripped up, fallen on his keyboard, and inadvertently called the forum because <laughs> he called a couple of times. I'm going, this is a bit strange. What's going on? I didn't know quite. I was doing something else at the time. You, I think you probably were doing your show or were halfway through it yesterday's <laughs> broadcast. So I thought, what's he doing here? So, you know, isn't he supposed to be talking to you or something? So anyway, I, at first I sort of binned the call and ignored it. And about five minutes later, he must have tripped up and fallen on the keyboard again and called me because I, I, I felt embarrassed not answering. So I just answered him, you know. And... Uh, uh, I said hi, and we did the whole sort of thing. And I was just, uh, we, I mean, the call lasted ages. It must have been an hour and a half. Uh, what did we talk about? Quite a, well, obviously something, but I'm, I'm hard pressed to remember what it was. No, we were, we were, we were just. He asked me what I was up to, which I thought was incredibly nosy of him. No, I, I didn't mind at all. He said some. He said, uh, he said some folks don't like me inquiring. I said I, I don't mind at all, Brent. It's absolutely fine. You know, he's such a gent, and I do he like is. talking to him. Fantastic guy. And um, so, um, yeah, we just we got around to talking about. Uh, oh well, I was talking about audio books and recording books. Our conversation ended up with him telling me that I found this really interesting, and maybe you'd know this that um, the audio book market, you know, is is booming. People it is. are spending more and more time because of time constraints, and it's a great way. I mean, I I like reading, but um, if you're a trucker, you've got to. It's wise to keep both your hands on the steering wheel. I understand it's not too wise to, to no, hold okay. the book. No, no, no. They got all they got all these self-driving trucks now. It's okay. They can sit back and prop their feet up and read. <laughs> well, that's another serious thing to look at. Really. Sure the makes you want to get makes you want to get out on the interstate, doesn't it? <laughs> I think so. But obviously, you know, you know, the, uh, North America is 
a lot of real estate, a lot of very, very long roads, a lot of uh, immense drives made shipping goods from A, B, C, A to Z and all that kind of stuff. So obviously it's part of the culture, you know, the sheer scale of the landscape and, and dealing with it, which has been part of, you know, being an American, I guess, is, is part of it, isn't it? It's a fundamental part of the foundational story of Americanism. And uh, so anyway, he was telling me, he said, these guys are obviously driving for hours and hours and hours. So in the cab, they're listening to... They get around to consuming, I guess, initially novels. This is what Brent was saying. He said, you know, they probably start off with the typical sort of let's listen to a spy novel or whatever or this, that, and the other. I don't know how it goes. So they'll start plowing through things. But after a couple of years or whatever the time frame is, I guess, depending on the individual, they're looking for more meaty stuff. And he was telling me, he said, that in some of these, I don't know what you would call them, truckers big stops where they stop over where park up for overnight and everything where they eat breakfast or whatever you've got over there truck stops is what they're paul let me educate you truck stops yeah i was going to keep describing it for hours and boring everybody to death there (laughs) anyway so uh, (laughs) so he said uh, he said that they you know they they cure and one of the most popular bits is picking up tapes and they're often listening to the bible i said really he said yeah um they'll they'll try and listen to scriptural stuff which is fascinating, really. And um, I was then um, talking to him about this, and I think I might have a go. I mean, it's very strange. You say, I, 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 I'm not trying to take the conversation this way. This is just what we were touching on yesterday, and we drifted into this. I don't think this was the focal point of his of his call when we first started talking. Um, I, th- I know what he was saying, actually. Early on, he said, I sometimes sort of tune into PPN, and I'm just getting classical music. I said, well, that's good. Sometimes you won't even get that. <laughs> good. That, that you is tuned the, in I at the right get, time. Get, you get the sound of space. Yeah, you'll get the sound of a satellite passing through space. It's completely <laughs> silent. quite good, you know. So it's for medita- deep meditative purposes where we we just transmit silence for a <laughs> time. We're the meditation so, uh, channel. Yeah, that's right. That's noticed how I covered my bottom with that one. So <laughs> that does happen, unfortunately, from time to time. And uh, he said, "Well, he'd like to listen to other stuff," and that's how we got we got around to talking about it. And um, I was reminded as well of um, uh, there's an actor, and I don't know whether we've covered this. Here. There's a there's a British actor. He's dead now, um, but quite famous. A guy called Charles Lawton. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Lawton because he he, he came. He's a Yorkshireman like I am, so he was born in Yorkshire. And he ended up marrying Elsa Lanchester. Uh, everybody would know her. She played the Bride of Fa- Frankenstein against Boris Karloff in the early 1930s. You know okay. those fabulous uh, horror movies that were done? I think they're absolutely fabulous, those things. They're so gothic and, and wonderfully sort of eerie in a natural sort of way. She plays that, yeah, she, she was the Bride of Frankenstein with the electroshock hair. Um, and she also appeared later on, I think, as... Uh, she was in Mary Poppins, the 1960s one, as a sort of housemaid or something like that. Whatever. Anyway, you'd know her. Uh, back to Lawton. Lawton um, used to have a one-man show touring around America, I think, in the 50s. It Probably something like An Evening with Charles Lawton in between still making films because he was acting right up to his death. And I think um, he was a great orator. He would speak and he would basically be doing book readings. And he read quite a bit from the Bible. I wasn't aware of this, but he did. And you can find his recordings online. Uh, They're quite amazing in a way. And this is something that I was talking about with Brent. He said, well, you, you, you learn through hearing. And we were just getting around to discussing the whole idea of vocal communication as opposed to written. I'm a lover of both, but, but you can see that, uh, when words are spoken and colored by a narrator, they take on a particularly, 
uh, they can take on a certain different hue. You can hear things, yes. can you not? Yes. And things in a way that you didn't get when you read them. And I heard Lawton, Lawton does a there's an Old Testament story called the Fiery Furnace, which is about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego who get thrown into a fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And it's brilliant. And Lawton, Lawton reads this. And he says, listen to this for a piece of writing. And, and he goes through it. And I was playing a bit of it to Brent. It's fabulous stuff. And when I first heard that, it just completely shifted my perspective as to the narrative. Totally shifted it. There's something we still have in just the use. Obviously, this is the reason why you're into radio and why I like it. And no doubt why the listeners like it. There's something still available to us in, in mustering our voices that we. I think we've only just scratched the surface on so far. I think there's some... Tremendous energies that we're able that we will be able to release as we get more and more on top of our material and what we're doing, um, communicating with, and that was part of it really. So yeah, I think I think Brent's quite into the idea of obviously doing narrations and having thousands and thousands of truckers buy these things up and listen to them. Which I is had not about uh, I had people suggest to me that I that I do my book in an oral book too. Let me just leave that's not just truckers. Uh, because my mom, it's all the people that are suffering from uh, macular degeneration that are legally blind. The numbers and the percentages on that in the U.S. are absolutely sky high. And a lot of it, I believe, is diet. Okay, But that's what her big entertainment form is now, is, is books. And there's a program where people that are legally blind can go to the library and they bring them in the mail to you. There's no charge. And then you uh, listen to them and put them back out for the mailman and they take them back and supposedly give you credit for them. Uh, but anyway, that's a whole nother big market there. Well, we need to think that's, you know, I'm always thinking about numbers. Well, you just I mean, did a, you just read a book. Are you finished with that yet? That project? Just about, yeah. We'll announce it probably in February. I've just got some more polishing to do for the next couple of weeks, and then I think in February. So let's just keep that under wraps. All right. I don't want to talk about it too much. But, yeah, that's just about done. That's the first one. Um, and uh, it's 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 just the whole thing was interesting. I mean, Brent was saying, hey, I've got this thing that can take out all your breathing sounds. He'd really been thinking about it quite a lot. And then we were talking about a guy called uh, that had narrated the Bible uh, an American guy called Alexander Sowerby, or Sorby. Uh, I'd pronounce mm -hmm. it Sowerby, I guess. Um, and if you haven't, it's absolutely fantastic, but he doesn't sound like an American. He sounds like an Englishman. Or he sounds like some sort of a transatlantic accent that's more English than American. But I think he was from New York. And uh, he's recorded, I mean, basically, he's narrated the entire Bible. And it's very good. I find it a little quick. His narrations, which is rich coming from me, because I speak ten to the dozen as well, but um, it's uh, it's good. Which uh, which good, version? So. Which version did he read? Do you know? Uh, King James, mm -hmm. Alexander Sowerby. I mean, the King James is. We were talking about that as well. Obviously, you know, Brent's very knowledgeable about this. I'm aware that there's a lot of errors in it. So is Brent. But the language at times yeah. is so lyrical, so fabulous that if you're going to read, you, you better read that. And one, there's still one section of England that speaks that language. Well, I speak it sometimes in the bathroom on the morning, but it sounds <laughs> what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, and I wish we all spoke like that. There's something... He was telling me that Abraham Lincoln apparently read from it out loud every day. That's how he developed his diction, his clarity of, of mastery of words. And it's understandable, you know. And we were talking also... The guy... 
uh, it's Tyndale, William Tyndale, when, that's responsible yeah, for the great bulk of it, you know. Right. And Tyndale, there's a great quote from Tyndale, and I was sort of touching on this with Brand, who I don't think wants to go in this direction. I understand that, I'm, you know, but we were just talking about Hebrew and the, the old Hebrew. And Tyndale came up with a quote, I'm paraphrasing, it was something like this. He said, it was a, a note about his translation work, and he said, um, the Hebrew so agreeth with the English, or the English so agreeth with the Hebrew, I don't know which order it was in, that all one hath to do um, is is convert word for word, like for like, and meaning and understanding proceedeth. And literally all he was doing was in the Great Book was changing the words, but the syntax, the sentence structures, the way that the Hebrew worked, English works like that. And, of course, there's another connection over to here, which is the Welsh, which I've probably mentioned here before. But those that speak Welsh, which is a bit of a language, you can go and listen to it at some point. I can't speak it, thankfully. It's quite – they always sound as though they're about to spit all over you. Not really. It's, it's quite nice, actually. There's bits of it that's lyrical, but it's got a lot of going on with it. And um, – they said, Richard Burton, the actor, said, if you can speak Welsh, you can speak Hebrew. And there's a re and, and they can. And the reason for it is that the, um, even today, the, the Welsh Parliament is known as the Kimru, C-Y-M-R-U-Y. It's a funny word. Uh, I probably pronounced it wrong. Uh, but it's actually Cymru. And that, that roots back to Sumerian, and Sumerian roots back to another word, and the Scythians, and so on. It goes all the way back to the tribes. And that Hebrew, the old Hebrew, the uh, it came through to them in that way. So, mm -hmm. I like this stuff. I think that there's ma you know there's masses of evidence in these things. And then when Tyndale wrote that, that was a, a wonderful thing to read because you realise that there was a reason for it turning into English. Um, and I think that's also you know um, words are so massive, <laughs> so massively important. When I so use, you know, we live on it. We live in them. Don't we? We're living in words all the time. Let me quote the first page of my book found on the first page of the NOLO Press, University of California, Berkeley, um, how to do things. A really good, for any of you that are into this, really good resource for how to bankruptcy, divorce, etc. NOLO, N-O-L-O Press. And uh, in their legal research book on the front page was this quote. When I use a word... Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone. It means exactly what I say it means, no more, no less. But, said Alice, how can you make a word mean so many different things? The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, who is to be master? That's all. Thank you, Mr. Ruskin. And that's Lewis Carroll. Yes, well, Miss, and Lewis yeah, Carroll's Ruskin. daughters were the ones that Ruskin went over yeah. to and taught watercolor to every week, once a week. That's all. I found that out of wow. Wikipedia research in the book. And in back then, I don't know if it still exists or not, but uh, they've got throughout Central Park in New York, There's one, they've got statues all over the place, you know. And there's a whole little section that's dedicated to Alice in Wonderland. It's got the, a, a toadstool with Mad Hatter sitting up on top or something. All the characters are right there in a bronze cast 
little statue scene in Central Park. And I said in the book, what do you want to bet it was funded by one of the Rockefeller Foundations? Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. I think they, you know, um, within the symbolic language that they use to to train spooks over here, MI5, MI6, um, uh, they use books as triggers. Uh, Catch yes. the Ride by J.D. Salad right. is one of them. Great they book. Use, they may be using it, um, yeah, but they use it to embed certain thoughts and things. Also, Alice in Wonderland is another one. Yes. Down the rabbit hole. Going down the rabbit hole is obviously a euphemism well, for all sorts of things. Do you know what the the, really the title was of Alice in Wonderland before it was changed? No. Through the Looking Glass. Yes, he has that, doesn't he, as a subtitle, I think. Yes. And what, was, and, and what does that mean? You know, here's the story. You can go look it up on the Internet. Do a search on Lady Rothschild's costume ball. Have you ever done that, Paul? No, it's not right. the sort of thing. I think. All right. Well, no, this is very, it's very interesting and it's very yeah. telling, okay? And if you'll do a search on Lady Rothschild's costume ball, it was a, a while back and shows people in their costumes, uh, hideous costumes oh, and that. all you that. Mean from the 70s, the 1960s yeah, yeah. and 70s. Yeah, but, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen all of those. Yeah, but I the thought first. You meant- I thought you meant Lady Rothschild back when when Carol was alive in the 1890s, no, 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 no. early 1900s. No, but yeah, I'm familiar with that. In the first paragraph of one of the stories, and in one of the paragraphs, it showed a picture of it. And it said, Lady Rothschild was so clever. She had the invitations written backwards, so you had to look at them in a mirror to be able to read them. Yeah, they like their stuff, don't they? Yep. It shows you the power of stories. Stories are so powerful. Yep. Incredibly powerful. It's like so, programming cards. Everything. So here's, your life. here's what you walk away with that from and the lesson that you learn. Their whole program's based on dialectics. I was just listening to something today, this Esteban thing. Uh, Greg Hunter's got an interview today out with Daniel Esteban. One of our good listeners in South Africa sent me a interview, almost the exact same subject matter he did on this past weekend. And I was listening to it this morning, what he had sent, and I looked over and there's the Greg Hunter thing with Esteban. So I dumped out that because it was from ex-wife number three and uh, started listening to the Greg Hunter. I'm a little bit through it. Uh, Y'all might want to check in on that today, Esteban. But he said that the dialectical thing came from Karl Marx. There's a comment he made during. He said Karl Marx's whole philosophy was built on uh, the dialectical principle. So what do we take away with that? Well, we know they're set up. We know everything's based on opposites. So whatever answers we're looking for, we got a quandary and a problem or a question, you just look in the opposite direction. The answer's there every time. I mean every time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to sort of, I keep viewing just about everything as a distraction. I keep thinking that, you know, as you keep shifting your context, all the content takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? Uh, it, it, This is kind of a process throughout life, you know, hopefully if you're paying attention. We'd like to think that maybe every now and again we might look or even be wise to to younger people. (laughs) You go, oh, there's a life well lived. Yeah, I've thought a lot about things. I actually learned something by the end of it. But um, the, the whole of the shifting of the context um, changes the way that you, you're viewing the content all the time. And I think um, 
that's what I keep stumbling across. I'm viewing things as a distraction, everything. I'm going, what is my day filled with? I kind of look at what I'm thinking about during the day. You know, In other words, we are reacting or responding, understandably, to items that they, 99 times out of 100, are responsible for putting on the agenda. I'm interested in us putting our things on the agenda. Well... Um, and looking at those, you know, which yep. in, invalidate us getting sucked into to reacting to their stuff, where we take charge at the root. The, I mean, all of their stuff is about opposition to God's law, all of it. Yep. It's in opposition to Logos, to the natural, healthy unfolding of life. They're in opposition to that. Uh, and we can speculate as to the reasons for why. We might even hit a few nerves with it as we go through. But it, given that we we don't like that, I mean, you know, I try to put it in a positive at times. I know it's a bit facile, but I say, oh, well, at least they're showing us every single which way to do things in a way we don't like. We can thank them for that. Every idea they have is useless to us and is of no value. But we need to step out of spending well, all our time being wrapped well, up in their ideas. It, the, the, their their like, ideas are valuable to us is that it, it highlights and reinforces our actions because it highlights the dialectic. That's why understanding that and putting it into the equation of reaction is so damned important because you know what the answer is every time. It's just taken me a long time to get to these very simple understandings of, of these principles, and that is that and their predictability is their Achilles heel. Yeah. It is. It is. They tend to be, they tend to do things by rote. The problem that we have is this is why I think it's a numbers game to some degree. I mean, I, you know, uh, it's not even down to me, but it's it's just the way I keep thinking. Um, if 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 we view each other as two viruses, I want our virus to grow quicker than theirs. There you go. It's like we have to absorb them over into the light before they absorb are, us into the dark. Are, are, are and, you being uh, like Prince William over there, or Edward? Which one was was it that said Charles? I wish I could turn myself into a virus yeah. and infect the whole world or something like that. Oh, you, you've struck a good thing there. He, um, you're actually talking about um, the Queen's husband, the Duke, uh, who's 97, Duke of Edinburgh, okay, and uh, Philip, Prince Philip, the Queen's husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, 97 years of age. He's the one that said that. He's a president of the WWF, the World Wildlife Federation, as well, and said, yes, if I could come back, I'd like to come back as a virus and wipe out lots of useless people. Um, you can understand why he might say that. Unfortunately, it tends to include us, which is a bit of a pity. Um, but he's a figure of some sort of ridicule and fun as well, Roger. But you will also be amazed, possibly, maybe not, to know that he crashed his car last week. He's oh, still he driving at night. Holy smokes. Yeah, he pulled out of a junction or something, and it turned. And we've got photographs. It's a Range Rover, a big, strong car, right? It's upside down on its skid lid. He got out. Ouch. 97. Ouch. He got out. He's okay, 97. Here's the kicker. Four days later, he was out driving again. Holy smokes. <laughs> Even a rhino can't knock one of those things over. <laughs> I don't know what he'd done. I didn't sort of plow into it, but there's been lots of extremely foul-worded memes come over my phone from friends lots of incredibly strong anglo-saxon swear words all over these pictures of him really taking mocking him completely but he's 97 i mean it's just 
do his eyes work? What's going on? I mean, it's just completely bonkers. I have no idea. I suppose. Don't you have chauffeurs and stuff in that position? Yeah, maybe they've run out of money and cut. Maybe he's been <laughs> the budgets are tight over there at Westminster, are they? Sorry, you can't have a driver anymore, Flip. No, 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 you can't have one. So I don't know what's going on. It's just wacky. I mean, I don't know what they're trying to do. 97, driving a car. That's, it's ridiculous. That's, a, that's an interesting fact in itself that they would allow him to do that. I guess well, maybe I, this I'll is part of the signaling. They're saying, hey, look. He's 97 and driving a car. What do you think we're doing? Yeah, drinking the blood of young children is what everybody's now thinking. Do you know what I mean? To keep yep. going like that at 97? Yep. Are you kidding me? Maybe that's part of it. You know, you don't know what they're up to. They've got all these sort of subtle ways of embedding and sending their little signals out. Oh, they'll think this and then they'll think that. And it's all part of mind, mind mushingness, you know. So. There's a lot of my, minds that have been mushed out there. I, I run into them constantly. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, and, and, and you want, we want to have a tendency to say, what can we do? What can we do to enlarge this? What can we do to do better? And, and, and I've just come to the conclusion now because I'm getting older, you know, Paul, we all are. And quite frankly, really? I just get, I told yes, you I've tried to stop it, but I can't. Me and too. I can delay it. And, and I'm it, an it, addict to getting older. You know, and I, to it. Just can't give it up. if I had yeah. more cash flow, which I'm about to have, and better connections with people coming back and forth, I could get my vitamins and stuff like I like, the longevity stuff, which makes you feel so much better. I mean, really, it's a big difference, okay? And, um, right. and hopefully that'll commence. But I just get to a point where I say, well, what? What I can do is concentrate on me because I, I can, you know, put thought into this and learn how to say it easier and help people if I can that are, are, are going along the path that are still haven't got the, the clouds and the cobwebs out of the way just yet and all those things. So that's I kind of turned it over to the big guy. I said, look, I'll do what I'm supposed to do here and I'll do it pretty much the best of my ability. Okay. But uh, I, you got to open. You got You got the big arm and the big hand, and you got to open the big door. Okay. And I know that if we do it and just keep doing that, that's going to happen. Yeah, I think it's the right attitude to take towards it. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. Because I feel that good things will happen. I just I have no idea of knowing when because it well, certainly isn't my shout. Paul, so I just let go of that one. I'm not in charge on that level. You but know, I think I've, in terms of. I've had this damning information on the bastards, and it is, okay? I mean, it's damning right down to the core essence of who they are and what they've done. And for all these years, you kind of beat yourself up. Why isn't it? Why isn't the traction there, you know? Uh, but then you come to understand it's not supposed to be there, at least not at this point. So that goes back to us just continuing to improve as best we can on what we do and, and do it as well as we can. Now, uh, the sad part is uh, Cliff High, who you know I'm a big advocate of, um, mm -hmm. on a mm -hmm. tape a while back, he was in his usual attitude, and he was talking with somebody. He said, anytime somebody comes to me that has any semblance of the word work, I'm not interested. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a little of that syndrome myself. Uh, but I do try and put, uh, put as much as I can into this time we spend together on the air um, and uh, try and 
illuminate people, enlighten people, educate people, get questions answered. And because uh, I know, really, these guys good enough to know that every time they get one of those affidavits up there at Foggy Bottom, their sphincter muscle tightens just a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they they kind of they're just on one they're on the side that they're on. Yeah, oh yeah, and they're in their ivory tower. See, they're in their ivory tower. People aren't supposed to know this stuff, and if they do, they're damn sure not supposed to take action on it. And and that's why the whole there may be two big keys for us in our pursuits, Paul. One being the common law birth certificate and the availability to the masses of a much easier approach and much easier to understand approach. And the other is, quite frankly, maybe me sitting down and going ahead and making the uh, sacrifices and getting the second book out because that needs to happen too. So maybe that either or a combination of the two, but I'd like to work on both those things this year. Yeah. Yep. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need to hear a lot of things that uh, not only us, but others talk about. And uh, that process is going good. It is going good. And, uh, you know, we weren't here uh, 25 years ago in terms of the scope. And it's all seemed to have happened so rapidly. Pretty quickly. From my perspective, it seems to, yeah, really, I think the internet speeds things up because you can, it's, it's, life has sped up considerably in the sense that you need to find a piece of information you can have it within a minute you could never do that before no. it's the sheer speed of delivery it's not so much the fact that you didn't know what you wanted you could have gone to a library but you can get it whenever well, you want it day and night within a minute well less I, than that i remember uh, cliff uh, talking uh, again years ago a couple of years back talking about this time right now and he said there'll be people with podcasts and programs popping up like mushrooms in a cow pasture after a rain and that's happening. Mm -hmm. It's happening everywhere. All these people with their podcasts and this show and that thing. And it's just the proliferation of it is incredible to me. So now what we need to try and ascertain is how to separate ourselves from that. Mm -hmm. Hey, Roger. Yes, Patrick. Question. Uh, what is the difference here of uh, reading in the book, uh, Citizen of the United States, Citizen of the State? Uh, what's the moral of the deal? What's the... the not up here. Well, you're either free or you're bond. Okay, I got you. So the, the federal the federal government uh, is a different citizenship there than with the state. Well, you got to realize. Look back at it this way, Patrick. Understand it maybe this way. What they did was at that point they had uh, uh, the uh, supposed grievance was they had a bunch of white people that owned big pieces of property that owned these black people as property. Okay. So they had an ownership right in them. The people then, the blacks, were a thing. All right? And so what they did was they took the black things in that context off of the southern plantation, and they put them on the federal plantation. Okay. And they had to open up a new status to put them there. Let me see. Jim Rams wanting to check in with us here. See if I can go through my little procedure that i have to go through to find somebody all right hold on jim i'll be right there with you our new abbreviated skype procedure here see if we can get mr ram to chime in obviously he's got something important to add hey jimbo you there 
Yeah, I'm here. I wouldn't say it's important. <laughs> no, man, you're an important uh, guy. Turn my. Yeah, there we go. Can you hear me? Yep, loud yep. and clear. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I, I still had the uh, live feed playing in the background. Very confusing. <clears throat> no, I was just, uh, I wanted to tell you, Alexander Scorby, uh, I've got his uh, Bible on CD, and I put it on my phone. I listen to it all the time. The guy does have a great voice. I always thought he's British. Really surprised me when you told me he's from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I looked I looked him up because I was looking for narratives and, and this, that, and the other. We were talking about it, and Brent said, you know, one guy likes one voice and another a like, and you understand. It's, it's true. You know, people sort of respond and warm to a particular way of telling, don't they? But, yeah, I think he's from New York. I mean, he doesn't sound like a New Yorker at all, does he? I don't know what he sounds like. So maybe he just – maybe he had a British aunt or something who <laughs> – who, who sorted him out properly name, when he was isn't, a lad. Isn't Scorby a British name? Yeah, I think so. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I, is... I, I yeah, Brent, we were talking about the pronunciation. You, you say it like Brent, that's Scorby, but I would, yeah. as I looked at it, I just went Scourby. That's what I would do. Even though we are two people separated by a common language, (laughs) you know, Brent said that as well. You're always saying that to me. It's true. It's true. I don't know why I bothered. Oh no, it's you're right. We are. are The Churchill originally said that. Just go have a fag. Okay. I mean, we're close to the end of the program. You can have a fag. You love that, haven't you? You really milked that one today, Roger. You had a you had an absolute train ride on that one. Fantastic. Well, that that was the first one years ago that really stuck out. You know. Absolutely. Well, he we does. didn't call them fags. We just call them. Uh, I better not, because I'll get locked up. I can't even use the words anymore. Yeah, hold the on. Word police will be out. Seriously, there will. There'll be word police departments. So don't it's ridiculous. don't put it on social it? media, for God's sake. No. I mean, what's going on is ridiculous. Oh, we just got knocked off. Actually, it looks like we got knocked off the server here. I don't know if my little Wi-Fi thing is going or not, but we're towards the end of the show. Let me do this. I'll go ahead and go through my little routine and see Make if we, sure can we get, get done. We can talk about your stuff. Get hooked back up here and get back on the server. <laughs> well, the Chris is still there. We kept the Skype connection through that. Now we're wanting to hook back up with the server for the end of the program here. Oh boy, I'll tell you some of these technical. When I move, Paul, I get wired. I get wired in two less than two weeks. So we're back on the server here towards the end of the program. What were you saying, Jim? You made a comment about um, something? Yeah, I was just going to say if Paul's free and wants to come on. We were talking the other day about him coming on my show and talking about health issues. If you want to, uh, I got nothing. I would. Lo- I'd, lo- I'd love to. I can't. I just can't do it straight after this one, Jim. Because no if if I do right, my health will suffer tremendously <laughs> as my sons throw pans at my head, and they'll be saying, "Feed me," and I'll be going, <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. uh, yeah, there'll be shaking of fists and the rattling of chainmail at my face. <laughs> so my health will plummet if I do that. I don't want to do that. Well, I don't want you to feel bad about it. Go. Oh, oh no, not get... at all. Just, I but, was you just know, thinking about it. But yeah, look, we, we, let's do it one day. One day, but probably when yeah, it's about for you. Well, I'm just. If you hear my voice, just call in. I, you know, I don't mind stopping for somebody. Well, uh, Paul's such a welcome guest. I'm glad we got him on regularly on Wednesdays here now, and it was uh, the result of an appearance he had a well, month, a month and a half ago. And several people said, "Man, why don't you get this guy on regular?" And I said, "Well, let me see if I can twist his arm a little bit." And so we got him on Wednesdays. Uh, you just need to touch base with him. Y'all schedule something because I'm sure you got some. I know you've got some very interesting background in that, Paul. I'm actually sort of green in many ways. I mean, it's just great talking to Jim um, uh, about these things. And you were mentioning longevity or whatever, and I've got certain things to do. 
I've got to get yeah, I've got to get a move on with that. There's the whole of the five G thing, which is of deep concern. I think there's no two ways about it. It's looking nuts, is that thing, and it's just part of everything being weapon everything being, being weaponized. weaponized against clothing, yep. food. Is going to build five G into their vehicles starting next year. Yep. Yep. Now, I saw a video last night of a guy with local footage in L.A., and he had one of the 5G towers in there, and he said they're popping up all over the city like mushrooms. The fight, you know, when they arrested this Canadian chick from the CFO or CEO of Hawaii, the the Chinese company, evidently that's what this whole battle is about with them is this 5G rollout. Man, it's going to be bad. I don't know what you're supposed to do. Where were we supposed to go? Do I literally, maybe, you know, maybe now the business opportunity that we've all been looking for is about to arrive. We're going to go literally into the tinfoil hat business. There you go. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to have to do it. We're going to, we can go in the whistling business. That's a good business to get in. Um, Paul, thanks a lot for being with us. Always appreciate your time, your perspective and your insights. And, uh, Jim and, and Chris heard a little of him. Patrick, hope you get to feeling better. And doc, if you're listening, I'm going to call you right immediately after the show and establish a profile with you that works. So, uh, we'll be back tomorrow talking about more topical things. Hope to see you guys then. Have a good day. Jim Ram is following this, and he always has an interesting show. So, y'all stay tuned. Thanks for being with us. See you tomorrow from Ecuador, Hasta Luego. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Roger.